welcome. I should probably turn this on while I'm at it. Welcome to our Sunday School. We are continuing in our series of Augustine. We are nearing the end. I told you last week we are nearing the end. This is tracking to be 10 sessions in total. Last week we looked at, we zoomed in on his life as a believer. So we did six weeks looking at the historical side, and now we zoom in for the next few weeks on specific aspects about him. So last week was his devotional life, his conversion, things like that. And today we're going to get into some of his views as a teacher. He does have many parts of his teaching. He wrote a ton. There are so many books of his, we can't possibly get to everything that was important to him as a teacher. So we're only going to be scratching the surface and getting at a couple of them. And in particular, we're going to relate, we're going to zoom in on his teaching regarding the Bible, methodology, interpretation, hermeneutics. How do we understand the Bible? And so that is going to be reflected in our devotional question this morning. How do I understand what I read in the Bible? And it may or may not surprise you that there are various views and intense opinions about the matter. And Augustine had one of his own. So how do I understand what I read in the Bible? And I'm going to do some drawing on this board here. I'm putting the letters so I don't forget. And then remember like five minutes later what I'm supposed to write. It's, it's almost like that's happened before. To start off. Well, let, let's, before we get really into it, let's open this in prayer, actually. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. Thank you that we're going to look into them today and help us to learn from them. Thank you for the man, Augustine, and how you used him through history. Teach us something about him today. In your name, amen. So to start off with the Bible, the number one thing that is important for a Christian to recognize is we come to the Logos, the Word. John 1 talks about how the one who was in heaven, who came down to us, the man made, or the, who came from heaven was made flesh, is the divine Word of God himself. And as he walks, as he breathes, as he talks, as he teaches, Christ himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What you hear from him, it is as though you have heard it from the Father. He is the Word. He is incarnate. And that means he is authoritative. His words carry authority. They are not on the same level of authority that you and I have. He has his own authority. And it's not on parallel levels, but it is far above ours because as creator, he has authority over everything he has created. He is not limited by our decisions, by our emotions, by our desires, but he has supreme authority. We call that sovereignty, or the, in old doctrinal terms, sovereignty fit under the doctrine of God's providence. And I, I, I like that terminology. It talks about how he's actively providing for every part of his creation. If you were here yesterday and saw the movie, you got a, a little aspect of that how he cares for things in the deepest, darkest ocean that no human even knew existed for centuries. And he kept providing for it. Why? Gives him glory. He loves it. We can extrapolate more reasons as well, but at its fundamental level, God is providing all times 
for his creation, including for you and me. But his authority is unparalleled. And that is the view that Augustine had of the Bible. He came to the understanding that the Bible is authoritative. And that's number one here. Uh, I already have the A. Authoritative. So this is not like any other book. You may remember if you were here, uh, as we talked about leading up to his conversion, one of the big issues he faced was in seeing the scriptures as being worthy of dignity. Uh, he, I quoted to you that he, at first as a young man when he was in other religions, he would read the scriptures and think, these are all right, but they're not worth the same, they're not at the same dignity of Cicero. And he put a ton of emphasis on that, which was philosophical and, um, and all of that. And the Bible, in his mind, didn't equate. It wasn't on the same level. So the key part, when he converts, he hears that child's voice take up and read. He opens up the scripture. It's perfect for the spot that he is in. The Lord illuminates. He, he played Bible roulette. And the scripture that fell upon him so impressed him in that moment. He breaks down. He converts. He sees the dignity of the scriptures. And who helped him see that, we saw, was Ambrose. And Ambrose was the bishop in Milan, up in northern Italy. The thing that helped him so much from Ambrose, I did mention this before, but we didn't get into it, was that Ambrose had a particular way of interpreting scripture. It wasn't unique to him. Many people did this in his day. But the way that he would understand scripture was not primarily historical literal. This is the way that we commonly interpret scripture today. We read something and we want to know the history behind it, what the, the immediate context historically is, and get find the literal meaning of it, plain literal meaning. Don't read into the text is a common phrase to illustrate that. But what Ambrose, his methodology was, was allegorical. So he had the allegorical interpretive method of scripture, which means that he would be looking for things, not necessarily just in the literal fulfilled right then and there, but what is the spiritual meaning behind this? And how does that connect in various portions of scripture? We would respond to the things that they say, like as mentioned, you're reading into the text or you're spiritualizing the text. And they would say, yeah, because that's what we should do. We should find spiritual meaning. Otherwise, what good is it? And so I'll comment more on that in a minute. But that allegorical interpretive method greatly impressed Augustine. Before, when it, he looked at it just literally, he didn't think it was worthy of much dignity. But then when he started seeing Am hearing Ambrose extrapolate on these texts and finding connections all over the scriptures with spiritual meanings connecting different points, that blew him away. And so he was a big fan of the allegorical method of interpretation. And there are some historical considerations here. Um, we put emphasis on what the old manuscripts say, uh, did Jericho actually exist? Did it have physical walls? That's really important. Um, things like that. Like we want to make sure that the details are literally true. Because if they're not, then we have a, a shaky foundation. 
In Augustine's day, it's not the same thing. They didn't have easy access libraries to millions of copies of writings where you could verify things and see what other people wrote about them. You were very limited in the amount of written material that you had available to you. So people believed what the Bible said was true, but it was po impossible to verify historical events back then. So ancient Egypt, for instance, for us, it matters what leader was ruling Egypt, who the pharaoh was, what, and then match it up with the historical records. Was that actually the pharaoh at the time that the Bible says? Like, that's really important for us, otherwise we question things. But for them, they had absolutely no way of knowing who pharaoh was at what time. They couldn't verify what Egypt looked like, how they would have lived. You just had no access to this. It didn't really matter to them if Egypt historically existed like that. And you track that along with other historical events. It didn't quite matter whether Jericho and the walls were up and they marched around it. Like, that's all, we can't verify it anyway. It's impossible for us to know. And so they didn't put much emphasis on the literary historical interpretive method of scripture. Um, here's one example. This is, this is wild. A if you heard that Pontius Pilate wrote an account about the crucifixion of Christ. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but let's say that he wrote a little letter, this prisoner accused of this, we executed him, he died, he was buried here, uh, you know, the events of the day, his journal. Let's say that he wrote that. Do you think that we would like, would like to see that? Would like to read something like that? Would you like to read it? I mean... Absolutely, we would like to read something like that. Well, he did write one. There was an account in the Roman imperial archives of Christ's execution. How do we know that? Justin Martyr, who lived just a, a generation or two after the events, uh, claimed that this account existed, as did Tertullian. Two different people mentioned, this account exists, and nobody went to look for it. Nobody. Eventually, Rome caught fire and we lost that document. But imagine that there was this letter out there. It's like, go, go, go get it. Go find it. Like, this is going to clarify things. And like, that's really important. But for them, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, there's a letter out there. Big deal. We have four gospels that say it happened. It just didn't matter to them. And so... What, what would have been the first thing that we do today, go and find it, didn't matter to them. This is because the most important thing was if what you read is true in life. Not, so if it is communicating truthfulness, not if it's, the, the historical side doesn't matter if it's not also communicating some spiritual truth or moral truth. Like you're always looking for meaning behind the historical events. So what, what it was important was communicating truthfulness, not necessarily the literal truthfulness of an event. Here's a prime example. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 137. I'm going to read the passage that is arguably one of the most uncomfortable passages in Scripture. Psalm 137. This is talking in the context of Babylon and 
how the psalmist wants judgment against Babylon. It's only nine verses long. I'll pick it up in verse 7, but the key is verse 9. Psalm 137.7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, so he's talking about the Babylonians, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Pay attention to this. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That sounds violent, doesn't it? We read something like that and we have to reconcile, oh, he's talking about dashing little ones on rocks. Like we have, that's uncomfortable. That's violent. And so what are they doing? Is it because the Babylonians were dashing our children against rocks that this would be retri retributive justice against them? That's not how they would have read it back then, back in Augustine's day. And that's not at all how Augustine understood that text. I'm going to quote for you how, what he wrote in his commentary, Honorations en Salmos. My Latin is not great. This is what he had to say about this text. When we were born, the confusion of this world found us and choked us while we were still infants with the empty notions of various errors. The infant who is destined to be a citizen of Jerusalem and who in God's predestination is already a citizen, though still a prisoner for the time being, learns only to love what his parents have whispered in his ears. They teach and train him in greed, theft, lying, and idolatry. Babylon thus persecuted us when we were our little. But when we grow up, what should we do? Repay her. Let her little ones be choked, dashed against the stones, and die. What are the little ones of Babylon? Evil desires at their birth. Does that make you uncomfortable? That would have been the way to interpret scripture back in the three and four hundreds. It didn't matter if you were talking about physical Babylonian children. What's the spiritual truth? How am I going to gain something from this? Remember, they can't back check these things. So I'm reading this. Uh, another consideration is that many people didn't have scriptures of their own. I mentioned this last week. But if you had, if you were lucky and blessed enough to have scripture, it was a, t a very small portion. And if you also knew how to read, like that, that's another consideration. So it was important that what little scripture you had, you would try to find meaning in every single word of it. So blessed be your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I don't, for them, I don't really care if this is talking about Babylonian children. What can I learn from this? Oh, these are evil desires at the root. I got to kill them in infancy. We would look at that and say, you're spiritualizing the text. Like he's talking, this is physical. Well, they would say, why are you limiting your interpretation just to the physical? If we can learn something morally and spiritually from it, we're, this is the gap of time. This is what happens over history. We have to be okay with this. So they found meaning through the experience of what the Bible was communicating. It made sense if it was true to life. It's true to life that we should kill evil desires when they're young. And so that's where the value was, was in the truthfulness of their experience. And truth being embodied by Christ, Christ being a living, moving person, that 
put all the more the view in Augustine's head that we should be looking for meaning behind all of these things, spiritual, moral meanings behind these things, because Christ incarnate walked with us, and he is truth embodiment and all that. This mattered for how you viewed all of Scripture, but in the Old Testament, he would see it that it would have literal meaning, but that it was always pointing to something greater. There, there was more going on than what meets the eye. Today, we would talk about, we would say that what they are, did is called typology. So you have the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You are describing a literal physical tabernacle, but the greater spiritual meaning, when the Holy Spirit comes upon all people, his presence is not limited just to the tabernacle. It was just, it was a type of us being temples of the Holy Spirit now, so his presence is everywhere. That's typology. The tabernacle was a type of the presence of the Spirit, which was going to be everywhere in the New Covenant. We, they didn't have that word then, and this became part of what would later be called covenant theology by the Reformers. This was foundational for the Reformation and, and for us today. Now, here's an interesting part. He came into Christianity with this allegorical interpretation. He was heavy on the allegory. But as he went on in ministry, he actually became more and more literal as time went on. He didn't abandon the allegory, but he would first try to find historical literal meaning and then would get into the spiritual and allegorical uh, application or what we can learn from it. So he became more literal as time went on, but he didn't exclude allegory. And he was able to, this was good because he was very strong on hermeneutics. His principles for interpreting scripture were sound. They, they were very strong. Even if he was interpreting things allegorically, he wasn't coming to wildly unbiblical conclusions about stuff. And that, that's very impressive. But at the same time, he was weak on commentary. I mentioned before that he had language issues. He was not good at Greek. Very poor, actually. He was proficient in Latin, but a lot of the manuscripts that he had, if they were Latin manuscripts, the ones that he could read, they were full of errors. You're handwriting these things. There's no printing press. There's no direct copy. You have guys who are paid all day just to be writing by hand. Like You can see how mistakes are going to be made. And he knew that a lot of the manuscripts that he was reading had errors in them. And so that makes it all the more impressive that he could tell as he is reading a Latin manuscript, oh, that doesn't fit the flow of the text. That, that's against what was in five Psalms earlier. Like That's clearly a mistake from the copyist. And so even working with faulty manuscripts, because of his strong hermeneutics, he came to write biblical conclusions. But because of his weakness in Greek, he didn't have much by way of commentaries. Of all the writings that he does, he has very little commentaries on the book of Hebrews. He doesn't do much of that. There's actually two reasons. One was the language thing. But the second might be purposeful. And um, the quote that he has for that, he said this in De Doctrina Christiana on Christian Doctrine. The man who lays down rules for interpretation is like one who teaches reading. That is, who shows others how to read for themselves. The result is that just as someone who knows how to read does not depend on someone else to tell him what's in the book that he's reading, so the man who has the rules I am trying to lay down here will not need an interpreter to explain an obscure passage that he may come across. 
He wanted to teach people how to read the Bible, not here's my commentary on it. So it was a purposeful decision on his part. He wanted you to be able to come to Psalm 137 verse 9 and not be thrown off because you don't know what John MacArthur thinks about it. You should be immersed enough in some of the biblical language and topics that you're not going to be in a shipwreck of faith because of what it's talking about. You know how to understand these things. So, uh, yeah, so the second part here that I was already talking about was methodology. 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 And now we'll move to another unique part of his teaching. He had these two words that came to define a lot of the way that he looked through life and even through scripture. He called the first category things. That's pretty broad. And the second, signs. You have a thing and you have a sign. I actually have the definition for how he defined things over here because signs is a little bit easier. What are things? Objects that don't point beyond themselves. So a thing could be a wall. It protects your city. Like it's not, there's not no big meaning to take behind that necessarily. Uh, there are objects that don't point beyond themselves. So what's the meaning of a thing? Well, they, the meaning for them is that they have use. The reason that there are things out there, objects, we use them. We, like, so food, we, there's no greater meaning, I, I just have to eat or I die. So it's for use. A second reason for them, enjoyment. And then finally, both. So the objects that are in our lives, you can even make this very personal. Think of clothing in your house. Does anybody have clothing that they don't wear anymore? Sitting in their drawers? Just to take a very unspiritual example, but if you, there's a shirt or a blouse or something that you got in your drawer, are you getting use out of it? Are you getting enjoyment out of it? Or are you getting both out of it? And if not, why is it still there? <laughs> I threw out some shirts this week. <laughs> but if you start looking things this way, that all the objects in my life either have to be used for my sustainment or for my enjoyment or a bit of both, and if it's not, then it serves no purpose. This is a purposeful way of looking at practical aspects of your life, and he did this scripturally too. And so then signs is basically, it's pretty obvious, but signs are that which points that which does point beyond itself it has a meaning a greater meaning or a greater fulfillment uh, to take some examples the crucifixion on the cross works he's put on an object the cross but it's not a thing that is a sign as well it was pointing back to the old old testament cursed is any man who hangs on a tree and the cross being made of wood would come from trees. And he's put there taking on the curse, which is put on man in the garden. And so he's taking the penalty of the curse on himself. So it's a sign of greater meaning, greater fulfillment. Another one is baptism. In baptism, we symbolize the going into the grave, the dying to our sins, being washed and renewed and coming out to new life. 
That's Christ in the grave. He died. He got put into the tomb. He got raised from the Father. He came back to life again. Baptism, picturing the, the death of Christ. So this is so that's signs. And another, this is an interesting example, actually. Let's. I'm going to spend a couple minutes on this. Do you know why Jesus appeared to women first at the tomb? Have you ever thought about that? Why does he show up to women first at the tomb? There's a couple of reasons that people give. Um, because of authenticity. Normally, a woman's uh, testimony wouldn't be considered as trustworthy as the testimony of a man in that day. So to appear to women first was to show, like, we're not lying about this. We're even going to use, like, we're going to show up to women first and... Uh, then we're going to get the account confirmed by men and whatever. So to start there, we're not ashamed to... So there's that. Um, or you could do what the denomination I grew up in did, which is that Jesus was giving the good news to a woman, which means that it's okay for women to be preachers. It's a, <laughs> it's a stretch, <laughs> to say the least. So, But to really understand what's going on between, behind Jesus showing up to the women at the guard, at, at the uh, tomb first. Thank you, Marlene. We actually have to go back to Genesis. If you could turn to Genesis chapter 2, there's more going on there than you realize. In Genesis chapter 2, the man, or God has created the man at this point, and we'll pick up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and every living creature, uh, uh, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds to the, uh, of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so Adam is put in the garden. He's the gardener. And he's not finding a, a fit for him. He's missing that fit. So what does God do? He puts him in a deep sleep. Now that, that, that terminology matters there. We even have it in Greek language construction. This was Hebrew. But in Greek construction, we know that to put someone to sleep didn't always mean and snoring. Sometimes it meant, there's a, the warning in Corinthians about wrongly taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have fallen asleep, is what some of the older translations say. Sleep sometimes meant death and sometimes meant you're just snoring. 
And so there's a very close connection between sleep and death. And this was common in older language, even in the Hebrew. So when God puts the man into a deep sleep, it's like he's saying he's close to death. He's not actually dead, but this isn't, if you have an Apple Watch, it can check your REM sleep, how much your, your sleep is in REM. Uh, this, this is deeper than that. He is close to death in his deep sleep. And so while he is in this close to death state, God takes from him and forms for him the perfect fit for him so that when he comes up, he sees that which is the, the fit for him, the union that was designed by God. He rejoices in what's there. And it is that image of the union that God had created between the man and the woman. The gardener found his helper. Keep that in mind then as you turn to John chapter 20. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we pick up the story of Mary Magdalene being at the tomb. So some disciples were running, trying to get to the tomb. The, the cloths were lying there, but they didn't go in. Then the disciples leave. Uh, so verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the temple. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Okay, so we have this account now of Mary being at the tomb. And I, I'm very curious about what he is saying in verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Supposing him to be the gardener. Who's the gardener? Why is John writing this here? He just wants to give us an image into Mary's psychology? As though a guy being dead isn't enough for her to not think that it's Jesus? Why does John tell us that she mistook him for the gardener? Who's the gardener? Adam. Remember, Adam was put into the garden. He was the gardener of Eden. He was given responsibilities. A lot of what the New Testament is trying to show about Jesus is that he is the new Adam. He is the better Adam, the second Adam. Adam was a covenant head for all those who fell. We have all fallen in Adam. But in Christ, that is the new people, the new humanity, the, the Christ coming together with his bride. So remember, Adam, as the gardener, was put into a very deep sleep, being close to death. And when he wakes up, there is the bride for him, which he talks, he even makes that mention about marriage there. His bride is waiting there, that union that God made in the garden. Well, now we get to John 20. 
Who's the gardener? It's, this is your better Adam. This is your second Adam. And when he comes out of his deep sleep, but his was actually death, he comes out of it, and who does he see there but the woman? Figurative of Eve. And who is this woman representing? She represents the bride of Christ, which is the church. So you, you see these connections. Like when John writes this here, this is with the understand, deep knowledge of what goes on all across scripture. He's putting these hints there for us to be able to make these connections. And so he, he, he approaches her. He sees her as representing his bride, the church. Does John have that in his mind for us to pick up on? Or did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write these things so later on we would pick up on them? I don't think it's by mistake that it writes some of the words that it writes. She is, Mary Magdalene doesn't know, but this is a picture of recreation of the first world, those in the first time under the first covenant. That time is over. I have come back and the new union between Christ and his church. I'm picturing it for you. Just look back in Eden. Look back at the garden. Here it is again. You don't see it in the moment, but you will. This might make you uncomfortable because many of us are not used to thinking this way. We're not used to doing this. But there, do you think that we could gain a lot spiritually by starting to read Scripture and understand Scripture beyond just literal right here, right now for this time and this people? Well, maybe the Holy Spirit sometimes puts in these connections and meanings that can benefit us in more ways than just that. This would have been very common in Augustine's day. So this is how he understood the Bible. This is how he taught his people to understand it. So when he says that he's laying down rules of interpretation, I want to teach you how to read your Bible, not just what to think about it. He wants people to see things like the gardener. Go back to the garden. There's a reason that that word is there. So that was very important. That's how he viewed scripture. Finally, because of a lot of the things that we've already said, scripture points to Christ. And uh, so because of his hermeneutical principles, because of seeing connections all over scripture, for him, he saw Christ in all of the scriptures. He said this in Contra Faustum, Christ meets and refreshes me everywhere in those books. Again, you see Psalm 137 verse 9. It's not just about dashing baby, physical babies. Like He wants to find more there. It all has to relate. How do I get this to Christ? It's all pointing to him. Whether the Old Testament authors explicitly knew that or not, it's all pointing to him. This is important also that we see these connections with Christ. Um, in our day, in our day, do you think people struggle more with seeing Jesus as a man or seeing him as God, as divine? For sure, the divine. People usually accept that Jesus was a man, a good moral teacher. He had good things to say, but they don't accept his claims to divinity, that he's a son of God, that he is God, we should submit to him. They, they deny that part, but we accept that he was probably a man. That's most people in society. In Augustine's day, the exact opposite. They struggled to see that he was a physical person. And they had very Gnostic influences around them in the day. Flesh, very bad. Physical, bad. Spirit, very good. So they accepted 
very easily that Jesus was another mystical, spiritual, energy-like figure who must have come from the realm of the divine. That was easy for them to accept. The hard part is, wait, he was a man too? You're crazy. So why does this is why the New Testament is very careful to say things like when Jesus was resurrected and his disciples are on the boat and he calls them into the boat and they cook fish and he eats fish and it tells us that he ate the fish. Spirits don't eat fish. It was important for them to show. You can touch him. You can feel him. You can hear him. He talks to you. He can smell. To be a physical man, that was the harder part to show in the early church. And it's the complete opposite today. So, one more, I am running out of time here. His hermeneutical principles, this is one of the last things I want to talk about. His principles safeguarded him uh, from a lot of error or potential error. Remember that I said that manuscripts had to be handwritten. They contain numerous errors. And it was a skill back in the day to be able to recognize, okay, that was just an error from the copyist. Because it was important to understand the flow of your text. These things are not isolated. There's connections all over scripture. And if all of a sudden it breaks down, oh, that must have been an error then. They had this skill to be able to, to know the feel so that when there's errors, he was able to correct them. So he didn't always have perfect manuscripts. He had to work with wrong translations sometimes, and we know that today. And yet his conclusions are almost always biblically faithful. It's because of his principles. It's important to have principles for how we read the Bible. And so what are some of them? Well, I think number one, we should recognize that scripture is clear. Scripture is not trying to trick you. It's not trying to confuse you. There are meanings in there and we might not pick up on everything on a first reading, but the gospel is for both the simple and the intellectual. So this, those with the simplest of understanding, it even says children, don't Suffer the children to come to me. The kingdom is theirs. Even kids can convert and understand enough about the gospel to be saved, to repent, to hear the good news. And yet it's also for the intellectual. And this is why you have theologians who spend decades studying just a few things. Because you never run out of meaning and understanding of the scriptures. It's clear. Scripture is clear. I think another principle in our interpretation. And this one is very popular today, which is good, context. As much as I'm talking about literal versus allegorical, um, if we lose context, we are, we are losing a foundation for understanding the text. It does matter that God physically acted, did physical things in this actual earth. And if there's another meaning behind that, great. But if he didn't do it physically, then... What are we doing? Are we just worshiping an idea or are we worshiping a person who came to earth? There are stakes that at play for this. Context is important. What is going on in this situation? What did the author try to convey? We call that authorial intent. What is John actually trying to get across when he says this? Context is extremely important. Most false teachers are going wrong because they totally miss the context. That is where a bunch of the error comes from. And finally, if you remember that scripture is clear, if you find the context, then start looking for the connection. 
And this is the part where I think the value of allegory and metaphor comes in. It's not wrong to see deeper meanings and connections in scripture, but you have to ground them into proper context, and you're not obscuring passages and making it all of a sudden a confused, chaotic mess. If it's clear, you find the context, oh, there's a connection too, like the gardener. This is put into scripture. Holy Spirit inspired all of scripture. So how, the, the question there is, if this one is what is authorial intent, then in connection, the question is, how does this fit with everything else? And it's amazing how well scripture fits with itself. And so those are some principles for how to interpret scripture. How do I understand what I read in the Bible? First of all, it's clear. Don't make it chaotic. Second, find the context. And third, look for some connection. And these days, some of the best value I'm finding in scripture is when I'm putting together more and more the connections between old and new. Um, and so that's a very rewarding thing. Okay, well, I took up all the time again, pretty much, but let's say a, a quick prayer, and then we can go to worship. Maybe there might be time for a comment or two. But thank you, Lord, for bringing us here. Thank you again for the scriptures and for how you used Augustine and how we can learn from him today. Safeguard us as we read our Bibles, but first get us in your word, Lord. Let us be having Bible reading habits that we are faithful to, we don't slack off in, and then make your word plain to us, Lord. Let us understand it. We know that you will. We know that it is understandable. Let us interpret it properly. Let us be stewards, proper stewards of your word. Prepare our hearts for worship. Amen.